Well, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there, and happy Father's Day to all the people who have dads. That's a cool thing, too. And uh, Jackson, thanks for doing that video. Uh, you never know what's going to happen when you ask your kid to do stuff for you, but that, I really enjoyed that. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. You know, uh, when you think about um, this story of the prodigal son, it's perfect for Father's Day because Jesus is teaching some things. And he actually is going to use a story about a dad to help us understand, um, to understand him. And so that is an amazing thing for Father's Day. One of the things that I think about is that God is called our father, right? And I just think about some of the passages in that regard. You know, Jesus, when we're praying, he tells us to pray our father who art in heaven. So when we pray, when we think about God, we're to think of him as our heavenly father, I think about Matthew 7, where uh, Jesus is just comparing earthly dads with heavenly dads. And this is kind of a really cool thing if you struggle with your earthly father. Um, uh, my kids didn't put all the things on the video that they struggle with about me. They put the good things. Thank you. It's Father's Day. Um, but if you've ever struggled with your dad, one of the things that we know is that our heavenly father is the perfect father. And uh, Jesus just says, if you, being evil, know how to do good things for your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father pour out goodness on you? Our heavenly Father is a perfect, good dad. And even in Hebrews 12, you know, fathering and our relationship with God and our understanding of what love is and how it works its way out in life, it is not simple. It's not just the nice, pleasant things. But God, when He talks about discipline, just says that our earthly fathers discipline us as it seems best to them. Like, earthly dads do the best they can, but they fail. They fall short. But God is not like that, and the apostle, or the, the writer of Hebrews just says, but our heavenly Father, um, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. So, um, thinking about God on Father's Day is amazing. Um, but one of the things that's, uh, that's awesome is regardless of what earthly fathers are like, our heavenly father is a perfect father. And the Bible tells us that God is a father to the fatherless. So there really is nobody who is without a dad. We have a heavenly father who is that. Now, I, just wanted, I do want to say this to dads. You know, we have an incredible blessing and a privilege to actually have God as our role model. Like one of the best things you can do as a dad is just to read the Bible and to figure out what God is like and what God does and then try to do that. Um, and, and that's what God wants from dads is that we will model ourselves after our Heavenly Father. And that's a pretty incredible and weighty responsibility. And it's something that everybody, we should always pray for dads because um, the, the way that we function, like think about that, we're called dad, we're called father, and then people read the Bible, and God is talked about as a father. So what, what happens is there's like this intuitive response as we think about our earthly fathers, that feeds into how we feel about our heavenly father. And that is a huge responsibility that is actually too large for any dad to bear, right? That your kids are going to think about God by how they think about you. Um, but I will just tell you this, um, if you have, you know, for, for many of us, our kids are older, 
and we did the best we can. But I, just, I would just say to all you younger dads, think about that as you're raising your kids, that you are painting a picture with your life of who God is. And uh, today, we're going to come to a passage that Jesus is going to communicate to people about God by drawing this analogy to a dad and his two sons. And um, he's going to use that as an illustration, but we do need to understand that this parable is actually not about fathering. It's not about parent. This is not a parenting passage. This is actually a passage about salvation. And it's something that God intends you to read and you to think about and you to get involved in and for you to realize that what is communicated in this parable tells you how God feels about you, how God thinks about you. And we should walk away appreciating that, understanding that, but then we should actually think about people the way that God thinks about us. And that is a really encouraging, wonderful thing. So we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to look at a younger son, and that younger son represents sinners. So Jesus talking to this crowd, there are sinners there, there's Pharisees there. And so Jesus, um, and Jesus is there, right? So Jesus is God, and then we got sinners, and we got Pharisees. And uh, Jesus tells a story that helps people realize what he is like what God is like, what sinners are like, and what Pharisees are like. And uh, he, he does that in this story. So um, I want to just tell you a little bit about uh, the context of this. I want you to see the flow of this passage. So this passage is super powerful all by itself, but it becomes much more powerful when you kind of see where it comes in the book of Luke. Now, here's the thing about Luke. Um, Luke, I don't know if you know this, but the book of Luke's the longest book in the New Testament, and the writer Luke wrote Luke and Acts. He wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. I think if I remember correctly, uh, Luke wrote, I think, 26 or 27 percent of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote like 24 percent, and then the Apostle John wrote like 20 percent. So, so this is the, the biggest writer writes, writes Luke. And when you think about this book it, and the way that Luke presents things, so Luke is the Apostle Paul's doctor, so he travels with Paul. You see that in the book of Acts, and you see that even in Paul's letters, that he writes about Luke, this faithful guy that, that when, when the people Paul had trained were gone and off doing ministry, and when others of his friends had abandoned him, he writes at one point, Luke's the only one here, and he's writing to Timothy saying, Timothy, come, because the only, the only one I got is Luke. And so Luke writes this. Luke really understands who Jesus is, but more important than that, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book and to communicate to us who Jesus is. Now, parables are great stories, but Jesus says that the, purposes, the purpose of a parable is to punish the people who don't listen and to bless the people who do listen. You know, parables were actually designed to hide truth. And the disciples would come to Jesus and say, um, hey, Jesus, like, why are you teaching in parables? And Jesus says this, um, he, he just says that, um, that parables are judgment against the religious leaders, and so that seeing they won't see, and hearing that they will not hear. So he tells stories that are confusing to some people, and then he explains them to those who are close to him. And so uh, we need to remember 
the privilege of hearing the truth and not be people who ignore it. Now, we're blessed because we get stuff explained to us in the Bible. Um, and uh, so, one of the things that Jesus is doing, so there's, so the book of Luke, it talks about Jesus, how he sits down and he reads a prophecy out of Isaiah in his hometown. And he says, so this is being fulfilled in your hearing. I'm that guy. And his town re- uh, rejects him. And they just say, hey, wait a second. We grew up with you. We, we know your brothers and your sisters and, and, and we know you. And so they reject him. So Luke starts at the beginning with people rejecting Jesus. And then he tells story. There's 17 accounts of miracles um, between the beginning of Luke until this story. And so those miracles are just showing and proving who Jesus is. The other thing that Jesus is doing is Jesus is actually preaching salvation. He's preaching the gospel through this whole thing. He's, he's creating this sense of urgency. He's telling people, you are in trouble without Christ. And if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And Jesus tells like these really radical things. And in fact, uh, one person, it says in Luke 13, so right before this story, Luke 13, someone says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able to. So Jesus is presenting the gospel. He's presenting people's need for salvation, and he's telling them there is a time limit. Your opportunity is not forever. You have a moment, and you need to respond. And so he's, he's just like has this sense of urgency, and he's, he's telling people, don't wait until it's too late because it's going to be too late. And then he tells all these parables, and basically um, these parables represent the fact that we have this life to make a decision about Jesus. Yeah, I was uh, reading something that somebody wrote, and they were saying, well, I'm not sure if people will have a second chance after they die. The Bible doesn't say they will, but maybe God in His grace and mercy will let people into heaven later. And what I want you to know is the guy who said that doesn't read the Bible because Jesus over and over and over says, don't wait until it's too late. Think about how terrifying this, this is, Luke 13. Many will say, hey, God, let me in. Let me in. And he'll say, no, I don't know you. And so Jesus is, is laying out that radical call to salvation, this incredible sense of urgency. And then he tells a story that we're going to read about today about God's love and how he's eager to to, to forgive and love and welcome people who repent. And then this is chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, he tells a story about hell. And he describes what it's like to be there. And um, so th- this thing is wrapped in the urgency of salvation. But right there in the center, Jesus is going to explain God's love in an amazing powerful way. And uh, here's the, the deal with God's love. Often we talk about how loving God is, but we leave out everything else that the Bible says about who God is. And, and love is incredibly powerful in the right context. 
when it's understood correctly. And so this is going to be really meaningful and really powerful. And so we're going to read, um, uh, we're teaching on the parable of the, of the prodigal son, but we're going to hit the two parables that Jesus tells first. And uh, so Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and the reason is that all three of these parables actually are the same point. So Jesus is saying the same thing, but he's going to say something in a way that is intellectually understandable. He's going to do that twice, and they're going to understand this intellectually, and then he's going to tell a story that helps people actually emotionally connect and think about this truth. So let's look at the first one, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. This kind of sets the context, and it says, Now the tax gatherers, the tax collectors, and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. <laughs> Think about the message that Jesus preached. It's radical, and the sinful bad people are coming to him. And by the way, sinful bad people are in trouble with God. Like It's not like, oh, religious people, God hates, but the sinners, God loves them. Oh, uh, sinners are in trouble. But when Jesus preached, these sinners are coming to Jesus because they have a sense in their heart that they're bad and that they're in trouble and they need him. And so they're there. And then there's another group of lost people. And it says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus loved sinners. And you want to know who else was lost? All the Pharisees. But the difference between the sinners and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees didn't know they were lost. They're looking at the, sin- at the sinners and thinking, you guys are in trouble. They're hearing all the things that, God, or that Jesus is teaching about hell and about judgment and about being in trouble with God. And they, while they are in terrible trouble, are looking around going, yeah, you guys are in trouble. And Jesus is soft-hearted and he's compassionate and he's looking at all these religious people and he's like, you think they're in trouble, but you are also in trouble. And so um, Jesus is trying to help them, trying to correct their attitude. And one of the things I think is interesting is Matthew 21, 45, it just says that when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So, and they decided they wanted to kill him when they would realize that. He offended them quite a bit, but they knew that Jesus was talking to them, but they weren't listening. So here's the two parables we'll go through quickly. The first one is this, and it just says, um, so he told this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country? There's a picture of 99 sheep. There's lots of them. And go after the one that was lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then he comes home and he calls together all his friends and his neighbors and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So, just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they think they're righteous. They don't think they need to repent. And Jesus is saying, these people you're despising, even one of them repents, and there's joy in heaven, more joy over one person who repents than all of you together who don't need repentance. Now, when I tell this story, how many of you guys feel like a sheep? 
I mean, intellectually, we can understand that, right? I mean, they were shepherds. God is talked about as a shepherd. So we can understand how this would have meaning. But you don't really personally connect too much with a sheep. You ever think about how sheep feels? Like, I guess none of us are going, oh, man, if I was a poor sheep and I was lost, that would be terrible. You know, like, like we don't personally connect or identify with a sheep. Now, he's talking to these Pharisees because they actually cared more about their animals than they cared about people. And, and many times as Jesus is talking to them, he'll say, hey, you rescue your sheep, you rescue your animals when they're in trouble, and it's because they were mad that he was healing human beings on the Sabbath. So there is, there is a connection there, but it's not super personal. Let's look at the next one, verse 8. Remember, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are lovers of money. So they liked money. They're going to relate a little bit to this. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp so she can get a lamp so she can see and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together all of her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, just in this whole thing of salvation, we have to always remember why God put us here. Um, he put us here to know Him, to follow Him, and to reach the lost. You know, so, so many times, like I remember as a youth pastor, um, we would have this thing, and I would have kids, and there would be lots of them, and they would do things that were hard on the building. And so we had these, we had these, uh, we, we had this deacon who I really loved him and appreciated him, but it was his job to change light bulbs. And he was always irritated because every week we'd break some light bulbs. And uh, he used to say, you know, can we, can we like not do things? Can we save our light bulbs? And, um, you know, I, I think about sometimes you looking around at the carpet in here, we got coffee stains on the floor. And I, could, and I remember at, at my last church, that would happen too, where people would come in and spill coffee. And I remember one time, somebody's getting coffee at the church, and they start to walk in without a lid. And somebody, like, just scolds them, get a lid, you know, for your coffee. And uh, because people forgot. They, they thought we exist to keep our carpet clean. They, they thought that our main purpose was to make sure that lights were on. And they forgot that actually our purpose is people's salvation. That's why God put us here. And so Jesus tells that story, and now He's going to tell a story. So they intellectually understand what He's saying, but now He's going to tell a story about a father and two sons. And I'll just tell you, we can all read this story, and we can all relate to it. Whether or not you're a dad, you can picture being a dad and hearing the things that this dad is going to hear. Um, if you really think about the lost son in this story, um, I read the story of that, the youngest son, and I really connect with that. That is the story of my life um, until I became a Christian. And then I read the story about the older son, and I think to myself, and there's a bunch of times I've kind of slipped into being that older son, and I have to work really hard to not let myself go there. So I relate to that older son. And I'm also a dad. And so I picture a dad having this kind of conversation with his kids, and I connect to that too. So let me just uh, read this. So Jesus is going to tell this story. And so we're going to see here, um, let's, talk, let's talk about the younger son. He represents the sinners. So it just says this, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share 
of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his, com- his property between them. Now, um, any of you guys have any kids? If one of your kids came up to you and said, hey, dad, uh, I want my, my inheritance and I'll take it now. <laughs> you know, think about that. Um, the Pharisees hear this story and they're like totally shocked and they're appalled and they're thinking how terrible. And then, but they, so they are totally disgusted with any kid that would ask their parents for their inheritance. Like, think about that. You live in your house. That's part of your kid's inheritance, right? And so if you give your kids when a kid comes to you and says, give me my inheritance now, like that just says, I hate you. I don't care about you. All you are is money to me. I mean, that is terrible. That is a complete expression of a lack of love. And then the Pharisees would have been appalled at the dad who did it. Like, I'm just telling you, if I heard a story like this, and, and, a, and a kid demanded their inheritance, and their, their parents just gave it to them, I'd say, what are you doing who would give their kid that? So the Pharisees, I mean, it's quick. It happens fast. And this kid is just such an attitude of entitlement. Give me what is coming to me. And so he does that. He demonstrates that he has no love for his father. And also this, this kid is completely attracted to and loves sin. Uh, we all know people like that, right? Have we ever seen that? You ever had somebody in your family that, that when they think about worldliness and sinfulness and all the things that the Bible says are bad, they have an internal attraction for it. They want it. It just seems fun. And uh, that's one of the blessings that Michelle and I had growing up is that we experienced a lot of the pain and sorrow that comes from sin. And so we have not grown up thinking, man, the grass is so much greener on the other side of the fence. We've been on the other side of the fence and we realize it's not green. But the challenge is, as we've raised our kids, they haven't lived that. And so when you haven't experienced this, sometimes those sinful things can kind of seem attractive. Well, look at verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took it on a journey to a far country. So this is a Gentile country where he's going to be around pigs. So this kid leaves and abandons everything that he has grown up with. And there he squandered his property in, the, in reckless living. And we realize his brother's going to talk about how that involves prostitution. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Um, so, by the way, that is always where sin leads. It leads to people to being in need. God loves us. The things that He says are sinful. It's because they're bad for us. And Satan tries to wrap those things in something that seems attractive. And, um, you know, there there are all kinds of stories in the Bible that help us see that. There are all kinds of illustrations in life that help us see that. I think about people who have been unfaithful um, to their spouse. and, And all of a sudden, it's like this thing that was so irresistible that they couldn't stop themselves from doing. They wake up in the morning and they just think, oh my goodness, what have I done? As they see their family meltdown, as they deal with all kinds of things in their life. And that's one story, but there are tons of examples of people who are pulled into things that destroy them and they realize it when it's too late. And you know, that's not even the worst part of sin. The worst part of sin is that it separates us from God and it brings God's judgment. And um, this is Romans 3.23, and it just says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And what it says in Romans 6, 23 is, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin, the worst part of sin, is not the suffering that it brings in this life. It is the eternal separation from God. It is the wrath of God that we gather for ourselves that we will certainly face. And that is terrifying. But Jesus is going to tell this story, and he's going to talk about a story that, hey, we've all seen this happen, right? Let's look at verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Like I said, Jewish kid <laughs> feeding pigs. That's, that's, that's like, man, you've fallen pretty far. By the way, in, for the Egyptians, if you took care of pigs, you couldn't be around people. It's not just Jews that didn't want to take care of pigs. Nobody uh, appreciated the person taking care of pigs. That's the lowest job anybody could have. And here's the worst thing. This guy is in such bad shape. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. You look at the ground and you see pigs in the mud eating that stuff. Does any of you look at that and think, I'd like to have that for lunch? I mean, this guy's in bad shape that that is attractive to him. By the way, wouldn't even do any good to eat it because these pods that they fed the pigs, a human digestive system can't even digest it. So even if you ate it, it would do nothing. And it just says here that no one gave him anything. He is in a place with no love, no care, no compassion. And, all, and, and it goes on and it says, and then when he came to himself, so he finally comes to his senses. He finally sees life for what it is. And that's one of the things we think about as parents, right? We, want, we don't want to see our kids suffer. But what's sad is that often as people head toward destruction, we try to soften the fall. Like I think about this guy, if he had plenty of food to eat, he would never have come to himself. And so this guy is suffering. And sometimes we got to be careful as parents. We love our kids. But we need to be careful that we're not removing the consequences that will get their attention. And so it says he comes to himself, and then he remembers what home is like. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I am perishing here in this hunger. Now, I think about John 10.10. 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> Got rid of my notes here. Let's see if I can get them going again. And then we also have Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to his spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. All of a sudden, he realizes that being a servant in God's house is better than any joy you can have outside, right? Isn't that what Psalm 84 says? For a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So here's the cool thing. This, this guy comes to his senses. He's in a, he's in a bad place. He's in a terrible place. He, he is bringing God's wrath upon himself, and he's suffering. By the way, that was the story of my life. 
I thought sin looked so fun, and I grew up in church, and I knew about God's love and forgiveness and who Jesus was, and so all the messages about God's love didn't do me any good because I thought, yeah, God's love is great, but actually sin's even better, and I don't want to wait till I get to heaven for God's love. I want sin today. And, and that's how I viewed life until I had a similar situation, and I remember waking up as a teenager after having six tickets between 16 and 18, and that's like the small part of what was going wrong in my life, and I realized that obeying God is actually the best way that a person could live, and that's actually the time I became a Christian. So I had a very similar experience to this guy. And so he comes up with repentance. Now, some people will say that he didn't really repent, but I just want you to know that the obvious story... <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, you get a lot of things for free here. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's just things from other places, but lots of good information. Um, he finally comes to the place that he repents. And some people say that he didn't really repent, but I just want you to know he did repent. What's the theme of all these? That God rejoices over one sinner who repents. So he does genuinely repent. Let's look at his repentance. He says in verse 18, I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. So he comes to the realization that the biggest thing wrong with this sin is actually not how he treated his dad, it's that he sinned against his father in heaven. And I think we have to understand that our relationship with God is significant. It's not just your relationship with your kids or your human relationships that matter. It's people's relationship with God. You can fix every earthly relationship, but if your relationship with God is not fixed, you're in trouble. And so he realizes, I need to get right with the Lord, but it does not stop there. Because he says, I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He comes to the realization of what a terrible thing he did to his earthly dad when he said, give me my inheritance. All of a sudden, he thinks about that. And he thinks about how good his dad is, how much his dad loves him. And so he wants to get right with God, but he also wants to get right with his earthly father. Hey, that's what the Bible says, right? Um, when it says that if um, you're presenting your offering and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your offering and go be right with whoever that person is. We cannot divorce our relationship with God from our relationships with people on this earth. And actually, your relationship with God informs your relationship with people on this earth. So this guy repents. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Um, he's so entitled. Hey, give me what is coming to me. Uh, his parents' money was not his money. He, he, he had no right to that. That was theirs. And he thought it should be his. And he realizes, no, I, I don't deserve to be a son. I, I just want to be a servant in your house. The other thing I would say about this too is that he's got nothing to offer his dad. He's not in a faraway country thinking to himself, oh, my poor dad, I was a son, I was helping him and I'm gone and now my dad's really suffering and he really needs me to come help him and work for him. You know, he's not going to his dad saying, hey, I want to do you a favor. He goes from saying, 
uh, being a son and saying, I actually don't care about being a son and I don't care about you. I just want your money to saying, Dad, please let me be a servant in your house because I would rather eat the servant's food. Like the servants in your house are better off than me. And so he's going back to his dad, not because his dad needs him, but because he, he's realizing, God, let me, let, or dad, let me be considered your servant. And that's a favor to him. He's, he's asking for a favor when he goes home. Like, that's repentance. We don't come to God and think, oh, God, you're so lucky to have me on your team. We go to God and we just think, oh, man, I don't know why you would want me. And I'm so thankful. We read verses like uh, 1 Corinthians where it says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And so we come to God and we just say, God, I'm just so thankful that you are so powerful and so amazing that you love unlovely people and you can use weak people to accomplish great things. But it's you that does things, not us. And so he's showing up not because of what he has, but he's just recognizing that he has a need for his father. So then we're going to see the father here. And uh, this is just going to be an expression of God's compassion. And as we think about the way this dad views his son, just realize this, that's how God views you. And um, whether you've never repented and you need to repent for the first time, this is how God thinks about you. If you're a Christian and you blow it, this is how God thinks about you. So think about God's love for you as we think about how this dad responds to his kid. So he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So his his dad is waiting for him, is thinking about him, is looking for him. You want to know what his dad doesn't do? His dad doesn't sit around to say, I wonder what he has to say. He, he sees the slightest hint of repentance. The kid hasn't had a chance to say anything to his dad yet. His dad just sees him on the way home, and his dad is running to him. You know, that kid's not wondering how, I wonder how my dad feels. I wonder how he's going to respond. He might have thought that, but as he's approaching his house and he sees his dad running for him, he is so clear on how his dad feels. And his dad hugs him. He feels compassion. He's kissing him. And uh, he's not making him grovel. Hey, son, I gave you a bunch of money. How are you going to give that back? Look at all this bad stuff that you did. How are you going to make up for that? You know, you think about the stories in the Bible that God tells. You know, Genesis 3.8, Adam and Eve sin, and God shows up, and He's looking for them. In Revelation, it ends with, with God saying to the world and everybody who reads the Bible, come to Me. Come and, and, and receive. Get, take the water without price. He doesn't say you have to earn it. He's just like, come, I want to give to you. That, that is our Heavenly Father toward us. Second Peter just says it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what God wants, is repentance. That is turning away from sin and turning to God. And that's actually why Jesus hasn't come back yet. You guys know any unsaved people? It's because God is giving them time. 
And um, so that's his attitude. Look what he does, verse 21. So the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he says all that stuff. He communicates it to his dad. And um, his dad, like, it's almost like he doesn't even hear what he says. He just immediately goes into restoration. See, that's what God does. He takes broken, sinful, bad people, and he restores them. He puts back together broken lives. Like, what, what this dad does for his son is so amazing. And I'm sure the Pharisees are absolutely appalled um, at what is happening here. So it just says that uh, he says to his servants, now the servants in this story, they're kind of thin. They just always do whatever God says. And that's how we should view ourselves as God's servants. In fact, in chapter 17, Luke is going to actually talk about servants. And he just says, he's actually responding to these Pharisees, but he says, you know, servants don't deserve any kind of thanks. And uh, he just says a servant, you know, when you have a servant and he's working out in the field and then he comes in at the end of the long, hard day, you don't say to your servant, oh, thank you so much for what you did today and how hard you worked. What you do is you, when he comes in from the field, you say to him, go make me food. And then the guy makes you food. And then when he's done making you food and you go to bed, then he gets to eat. He is nothing more than a servant and he has no need to be thanked He's only done what is required. So that's how Jesus says, that's how you think about servants. That's how you need to think about yourself. As you serve God, as you're pursuing God, as you're doing things, you deserve nothing. You get no credit for that. God is the God of the universe and you are a slave. He made you. And your purpose is to serve Him, not to receive things. Oh, this isn't fair. How could God let this happen to me? No, you are an unrighteous servant. You're just there to do whatever God wants. He made you. That's the perspective you need to have. And these are the servants. And by the way, the son is going, I wish I could just be a servant. But look what the dad does. Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. The shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Um, <laughs> there's a cow. Bring the fattened calf and, calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I mean, just a feast. Throws this party for his kid. Um, I remember when my kids were young, I used to take him to the zoo, and I would point at the animals, and I would say, that's bacon, and that's hamburger and steak, and that's chicken, uh, because I just figured my kids didn't grow up on a farm, so they didn't know that, and then, and then John wouldn't eat meat. He turned into a vegetarian after that, <laughs> and I thought maybe I'm, my education's a little too aggressive for my kids, but that's a cow. It's where food comes up, and that may look like a really neat, sweet animal, but they taste pretty good when you cook them and eat them. Let me tell you about the robe. The robe is something that the guest of honor would get. This kid didn't go out into the field like a slave. He was the guest of honor. The ring, that's the ability to conduct business. He says to his kid, no, you're coming back into the family. The shoes, slaves didn't have shoes. Sons had shoes. So putting shoes on him, he's saying, no, you are being restored. The, the fattened calf, that is a... That is like for a guest of honor, for a party, that celebration. Everybody is celebrating. And when you think about the servants, 
Those servants are all celebrating with the dad about this great thing that has happened in his family. Now, you and I should think about this. Because if we're God's servants, we should also have his heart. When we see people get saved, we should be celebrating. When, when we walk into church and we see another person, regardless of what they're like, regardless of what they're struggling with, we should see them and think about them the way God thinks about them. We should be thankful that they're saved. You know, it's amazing to me sometimes the way people in the body of Christ can think about each other. And one of the things I often think about is if we were all in a prison cell going out to be executed tomorrow for our faith, and uh, we would be looking at our brother or sister who shows up in church that maybe they irritate us by whatever they do. But if we were all waiting and about to be executed, I don't think any of that stuff would matter. We would just feel like, I love you, and I'm praying for you that tomorrow you honor the Lord as you are executed. And uh, the truth is that that's the way a lot of people live, but that's the way we should think. That's the way we should feel. We should think about the struggles that people have. God rejoices and He loves sinners who repent. And that should inform the way we think about and treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, and just, just to be like these servants. Um, by the way, this church is like that. I'm super thankful about this church. And that's not to say that none of us struggle at any time, but as a whole, our church is a loving, welcoming place. I'm very thankful for this church. Every time I talk to people, I am just reminded what a great place this is to be. So here's a third thing, is uh, you got this self-righteous brother, verse 25. Now his older son was out in the field, and he, was, um, he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked, what do, what do these things mean? And the servant says, your brother's come home, your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. You know, this brother had no idea where his little brother was, and it doesn't seem like he was too concerned. It doesn't seem like he cared. Um, he's totally apathetic. He doesn't actually see needs. His heart is not where his heart should be. He's not like his dad watching the, watching the road. All the servants know what's going on, but the brother doesn't. You know, I was thinking about uh, when I was a kid, and I had a sister that ran away from home. And uh, she was gone for about three months. And when she first left, nobody knew where she was. And my dad kind of felt like he knew some people that might have been connected with her disappearance. And so me and my dad spent some days doing reconnaissance, parked outside of houses, watching people leave and where they would go, hoping that it would lead us to where my sister was. And after a few months, and we didn't find her and didn't know where she was, you know, life kind of resumed, and I went back to school. But every day I would get up and go to school, and in the back of my mind was just this concern, this worry. I wonder where she is. I wonder if she's okay. And it's like I just had that weight on me all the time until finally my dad gets a phone call, and he hears where she is, and the next day him and my mom were in the car. They went and got her, and they brought her home. And that was before I was a Christian, so when my dad told this guy to stay away from my sister that she had run off with and he didn't honor that request, I helped him learn that he should honor what my dad said. And that created some legal problems for me. 
<laughs> I know what it's like to sit in front of a prosecutor talking to me about what they had in mind for me. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think about this brother's response, how he's going to respond. He says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look at these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your, your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So what, one of the things that you see is this younger son's entitled. He thinks he deserves his dad's inheritance. And this other son also is entitled. He thinks he deserves the younger son doesn't love his dad. He's willing to trade his dad in for some money so that he can go uh, enjoy the sinful pleasures of life. This older son doesn't love his dad either. Dad, where's my goat? Where, where's my calf so I can celebrate with my friends? He's not attracted to sin. He's just attracted to worldly approval. He doesn't love his dad either. There's no difference in the heart of the older or younger son. The difference is what they're pursuing. Like one's pursuing sinful things, the other one's pursuing, I'm going to work hard and be a good person and I deserve. No difference in the heart of either of these people. When Jesus looked out at the sinners and the Pharisees, he didn't see a difference. He saw hearts that were far from him. And um, so he's self-righteous, he's, he's angry, and... Um, you know, I think about how people respond. So I had a friend who was a pastor at a church, and he just kind of neglected some of his responsibilities. Like, he didn't pay his auto insurance. Then he got in an accident, and he had no insurance. And so our church is kind of looking at some of the things in this guy's life, and we're just saying, you know, they're not these really great, terrible sins. But for a person who's a pastor and who's supposed to be honoring the Lord, um, you care about doing the right things in little ways. And there was a bunch of these little things that just communicated in this guy's life that he wasn't honoring the Lord. And so the, the church removed him from his position as, as a pastor. Those were just all the things that were on the surface. But there were these deeper things going on in his life. And, and this guy went from um, functioning in front of thousands of people, very prominent. Um, he went from that to being back on the street selling drugs, and he went to prison. And um, after a time, the Lord got his attention, and so he comes back to the Lord, and he decides to come back to our church, and he just wanted to talk to people and say how much he loved them, how much he appreciated them, how thankful he was for the people who noticed things and were reaching out to him and confronting him in his life, and how thankful he was, and he just wanted to make things right. So nobody said he do this, but he shows up, and he just confesses before the whole church, and then he goes and he starts meeting with various people to say, I'm sorry for how I wronged you. And I remember he's sitting in my office, and he's just saying, Roger, I'm really sorry for how I wronged you, and he's going through all these things. And, uh, and I just remember saying to him, hey, I love you. I'm so thankful for how God's worked in your life, and I never felt wronged by you. And and like, I just was so thankful for him. But you want to know what was crazy was the way some people responded to him. Um, some people were saying, yeah, you've let me down. I'll never trust you again. I don't believe that you've changed. And just how hard people were on him. Uh, some self-righteous people. 
I remember sitting with a family, and there was this kid that was wayward and had just lived a life of sin for years. And finally comes back to the family and just says, man, I'm repenting, and I'm really sorry for the way I've lived and the things that I've done. And um, I just want you to know I've repented, and I'm, I want to follow the Lord. And so I'm sitting around the room, and there's this kid saying these things to their family. And one of the family members says, yeah, well, how am I going to get all these years I've lost? We were supposed to be friends, and you were supposed to be doing all these things, and, and you can't give me back the years that you took as you were living your sinful life. And just this harshness toward a person who's repenting. And um, that's what we see in this brother's attitude toward his brother. And one of the things that you see when you look at this is how much the dad also loves this older brother. Um, this is what he says. Notice it says, so he, in verse 28, he, he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Who, who's pursuing the sinning wayward son. Like the dad's looking for the sinful son who's coming back. But when this older son has a bad attitude, his dad is going out to get him. See, God's, God loves, you know, we think about the really hard things that Jesus had to say to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Hey, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Unless you're better than them, you're never going to go to heaven because they're going to hell and everybody who follows them is going to hell with them. And you could get the idea that Jesus doesn't love the Pharisees. But you want to know something? Jesus loved the Pharisees, and he knew that pretty soon it would be too late for them because they were going to die, and they were going to go to hell, and they thought they were okay, and they were self-righteous. And Jesus was confronting them because he loved them. And his attitude, this dad's attitude toward this older son is God's attitude toward the Pharisees. Jesus didn't go beat up on the sinners because they knew they were sinners. But the Pharisees needed something to jolt them and to get their attention. And so um, the dad goes out and the son says all these things. And then look how the dad, the dad entreats them. And he says um, in verse uh, 29, the son says, but he answered his father. He says, look at these many years I've served you, never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. In verse 30, and then in verse um, uh, 31, he said to him, son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. So he just says to this older son, hey, you're going to get all the stuff because your brother's inheritance is gone. The only thing left is what you get. And he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours. You know how he said, the son says, uh, that son of yours. Yeah. And then the dad says to him, this brother of yours is alive and he was lost and now he's found. You know, it just reminds me of Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, when Jesus talks about forgiveness, um, uh, some people are saying, how many times do I need to forgive? And in Luke, uh, Jesus says, um, if your brother sins against you multiple times and comes and says, I'm sorry, you forgive him every single time. That's 
Not, oh, after you've proved myself, after you've proved yourself. No, just have a heart that overflows with forgiveness toward other people. Why? That flows out of the heart of a person who realizes how much God has forgiven them. Then it makes it easy to pour out forgiveness on other people. And actually, that's what God intends. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, this parable ends. Uh, how, did, how did the older son respond, do you think? It doesn't say. <laughs> do you know why it doesn't say? It's kind of like the book of Jonah. It ends without finishing the story. And the reason it doesn't finish the story is because the Pharisees were supposed to hear this and then decide how they were going to finish the story. And the reason that God tells this this way is because you're supposed to hear this. And then you're supposed to decide how you're going to finish the story. Are you going to be like the dad? Are you going to love other people? Are you going to realize that you're either the younger son or the older son, or maybe you're both? Um, and when you think about that, that should inform you, make you want to run to God. And I would just say, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, man, you need to take care of that. And if you're here and you do know the Lord, we are supposed to be people who in the way we live and in the way we treat people, that we reflect the character of God. And that, what that means is sometimes we say hard things to people that they don't want to hear, just like Jesus did to the Pharisees. But it also means that sometimes we are really soft-hearted and encouraging and helpful to people, that when somebody's feeling overwhelmed, we don't pile on. We are so gracious. We lavish people with love and forgiveness and restoration. You know, Jesus' message was, you are in trouble if you don't know me. But if you do know me, the, God's arms are open, and He's loving you and welcoming you. And we're supposed to embody that in how we treat people and in how we think about people. So let's um, go back to Father's Day for a second. Hey, if you have a dad that's not a perfect dad, <laughs> join the club. If you are a dad who is not a perfect dad, <laughs> join the club. <laughs> that, that's all of us. And I would just say that, um, you know, just know that God loves you. God forgives you for things, um, any ways that you've fallen short. And if you have a dad that's blown it, your heart toward your dad should be the same as this father's heart is toward his sons. It should be the same as um, God's heart is toward you. And um, so love your dad, appreciate your dad, forgive your dad. And, and if you had a dad that did his best and you're thankful for, well, you should love your dad too and appreciate them. So go to lunch with them and have a good time with them. Uh, but just I want you guys to all know God loves us. God is merciful toward us. And we should pour that out on other people. But also, uh, if you're not right with the Lord, uh, you only have this life to do it. Don't let, don't let this life pass, because once it does, it's too late. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word, and God, I thank you for just how amazing you are and how much you love us. God, I pray that you would help us to run to you knowing that you love us, you're looking for us, you're waiting for us, there is restoration. There is no condemnation. 
Lord, there is only forgiveness and love. And Lord, I thank you that that's true before we know you, but it's still true after we know you. Help us to be a church family that reflects your character in your name. Amen.